Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 107th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. You can call me JAG. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization connecting young people with the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined by Professor Rachel Ferguson. Before I even begin to introduce our guest, I want to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, you can use the comment section to type in your questions, keep them short, and we will get to as many of them as we can. So my guest today, Rachel Ferguson, is a professor of managerial philosophy at Concordia University, Chicago, and the director of the Liberty and Ethics Center at the Hammond Institute. She's also the co-author of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, Hope, Heartbreak, and the Promise of America, which applies a classical liberal lens to how both the violation of property rights and failed paternalism have contributed to deep injustices against Black Americans, while also celebrating Black entrepreneurs who've overcome tremendous obstacles to create flourishing businesses and communities. Professor Ferguson, welcome again. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So you received your PhD in philosophy from St. Louis University, um, and you list Aristotelian virtue theory as among your interests of study. What were some of the early influences or experiences that encouraged you to pursue philosophy? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually grew up in a, a household with a lot of really open conversation. I'm a pastor's kid. Uh, both of my parents were pretty deeply intellectual, and we were in an extremely multicultural environment as well. Um, my church was multi-ethnic, and so was my neighborhood, and actually so was my household. I had foster brothers as well. And so um, I was pretty used to thinking about questions of deep meaning and, and thinking about texts and how they ought to be interpreted and things like that. So when I got to college, I was a bit lost. I actually changed my major about four times, but uh, I took a logic class. I remember my dad had been in the Air Force Reserves and he said, everyone has to take a logic class. And so I signed up for logic and I thought, this is fun. This is like a game. And the other students in the class were more like uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. You know, they, they were struggling a lot. I ended up being the um, person who was sort of organizing the study groups. And my professor honed in on me and said, hey, you're really good at this. You need to take more philosophy. And her name was Donna Charon. She's actually had been a writer for the Cato Institute and had had a, a libertarian uh, kind of mind herself. And she and I absolutely just hit it off. Um, she really took me under her wing. Uh, I, she considered me kind of her intellectual offspring and having a mentor like that was, was so, so important. And uh, she's the one who set me on my way. Well, that's, uh, that's a beautiful story. Um, and there's gotta be another story uh, it, behind what led you to write Black Liberation Through the Marketplace with your co-author, Marcus Witcher. I understand there's an interesting uh, evolution of the project. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I, I did grow up with, uh, with Black Foster Brothers who were from the inner city. They struggled with the criminal justice system. In the back of my mind, as a political philosopher, I always had the problem of the Black American male sort of there, right, looming. And uh, I live in St. Louis. I live uh, just 10 minutes from Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, my, my university that I was at at the time was 10 minutes on the other side. So I was passing Ferguson all the time. And when the unrest occurred there, I really put a lot of effort into supporting the entrepreneurs. I'll, I'll never forget when the um, black butcher shop spray painted on their wall, uh, we did not kill Mike Brown, black owned business, right? They didn't want to have, have their shop burned down. And I really wanted to support the entrepreneurs. I wanted to get people in St. Louis to be shopping in Ferguson, which is actually quite a nice area. And um, so as that evolved, uh, colleagues began to come to me. They saw me as a person who cared about the community. They asked me to help uh, students get to the Smithsonian, the opening of the uh, African-American History and Culture Museum. And I said, well, I can help you through the Liberty and Ethics Center, but I need to pursue my mission, right, in order to do that. I said, what if you give me five weeks of your social justice class 
and I present a classical liberal account of the systemic oppression of African-Americans. And at that time, I had a, an outline of some basic classical liberal insights about the minimum wage, uh, the, the beliefs of Frederick Douglass, the, uh, the uh, abuse of them in a domain, and the way that that affect black, affected Black Americans. And so that lecture series is actually the thing that ended up transforming into the book because as I let people know about it or I went around and, and offered tidbits of it in different places, I had a lot of classical liberals saying, you've got to write this up. You've got to write this up, right? This is all of these insights need to be put together into one place. Well, spectacular. Um, and uh, also a very good audio book, I might add. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> worth listening to and reading. And um, in your introduction, you uh, posit that one of the obstacles to coming to terms with past injustices and finding solutions to current challenges uh, to black um, uh, facing black Americans is the phenomenon of bundling. What do you mean by that? And um, why do you argue that we cannot fully and fruitfully address issues of racial justice without first committing ourselves to the process of unbundling? Yeah, thank you for drawing attention to that to that uh, term. It's it's really important to me. I, I think we're in a very tribal, very polarized moment. There's a lot of contempt going around uh, between groups, and you know the the formation of a party platform is going to lend itself to this kind of bundling, right? I mean, you've got to have a group of, of ideas that you're putting forward. And yet, from a philosophical perspective, it doesn't necessarily make sense, right? And so if I know what you think about Afghanistan, it doesn't mean I should know what you think about abortion, or I should know what you think about the environment. Those things may not have any uh, uh, relation in terms of your political philosophy, um, or you may take surprising uh, views on that, depending on, for instance, your understanding of the data. And so one of the things we need to do is to separate these issues and take them one at a time. And this is particularly important when it comes to Black Americans, because they've never fit into the political categories of the majority culture. And so they don't fit into them now. You know, they tend to be the most centrist of the Democrats, very pro-business, pretty socially conservative, actually. And, uh, and in many ways kind of trapped in a two-party system that doesn't really capture their um, cultural heart, you might say. And so uh, as a person who relates a lot to feeling politically homeless, uh, I thought, you know, why not bring the insights of classical liberalism, which is a kind of tribe-busting approach, right? It's a way in which we can look at things, sometimes the left gets something right, sometimes the right gets something right, and sometimes they're both wrong. And so uh, we can ask people to, you know, sort of go on this emotional roller coaster ride with us where in one chapter you might be very familiar with the, the tone or the ideas that we're taking and in another one you might feel very surprised or disturbed and we're asking you to kind of stick with us and maybe become a, an anti-tribal person yourself. Well, I, I do think that there were quite a few surprises uh, in, in the book. And, and one of them, um, speaking of a highly bundled and highly charged issue, was that of gun control. You cover it uh, towards the end of the book, but since it's dominating the news, um, perhaps we can start with a history of guns and race in America. Yeah, so you can also look at a, an article that uh, was published in the National Review just a few months ago uh, by myself and my co-author, Marcus Witcher, called Black, Black Gun Rights Matter. And we even get into more detail in that article, but uh, we do deal with it in the book. Um, you know, the, the original gun control laws were all anti-Black. They, they were only applied to Black people. Um, whites, of course, were encouraged to own guns and even required during the revolutionary period to own guns. Um, and so you saw many of those laws through the years. You really see the abuse of gun control laws in the convict leasing period that you see after emancipation and all the way up into the 20th century, where you had a lot of made up crimes that were criminalizing black men so that they could be rented out to mines and farms as workers. And so you wanted to charge them with vagrancy or talking to a white woman or having a gun, which of course was totally normal in the late 19th century. Everyone carried guns. And so it was a way to criminalize them and then, and then use their labor um, in a violent you know, extraction kind of way. 
And then, of course, into the 20th century, it's actually the, the Black Panthers who end up inspiring the first uh, gun control laws because uh, they were patrolling the neighborhoods where they felt that police were being uh, brutal and they were patrolling them themselves. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense is actually the full name of the Black Panther Party. And uh, when there was kind of a crackdown on them, uh, they marched right into the state house with their guns in tow. And it freaked everybody out so much that uh, they, they, they started passing serious national level gun control laws. And actually Ronald Reagan back in the late 60s was, was part of this uh, in, in California, passing uh, gun control laws in response to the Black Panthers and then, and then broader nationally. So even though the excuse was the assassination of MLK or of RFK, uh, really, when you look at the actual congressional record, they're talking about the Black Panthers. That's that's who they were concerned about. And so you see that a lot of our history of gun control is anti-Black. And you also see that uh, when you look at the mass incarceration crisis that we're dealing with today, one of the charges that's often stacked, even in a meaningless way, like a, like a gun that's in the car while the person was committing the crime, that still gets stacked. You get minimum sentences, mandatory minimums, and or parole violations because somebody's carrying a gun. And so it's, it's a big, big source of the inequality that we see in mass incarceration with black men, uh, even though blacks are actually less likely to own guns than whites. And so, um, you know, it's it, for anyone considering gun control, they, they, they really need to consider what the outcomes will be for the mass incarceration crisis as well, which shows that you can cross over kind of some of those right left concerns. Interesting. All right. Um, I have quite a few questions of my own, but I do want to get to audience questions. So I want to remind all of you who are watching us, please go ahead, jump in the chat, type a comment in or a question, and uh, we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. We will also post the link to the article that Professor Ferguson mentioned, um, Black Guns Matter. Black Gun uh, Rights Matter, yeah. Black Gun, <laughs> gun Rights Matter from uh, National Review. Um, but I'm just going to take a, take us a little bit further back uh, in writing about black civil society and self empowerment. Um, you compare the approach of Booker T. Washington and W. E. B. Du Bois uh, and suggest that there was more overlap than commonly believed. So perhaps uh, give us a little background. Tell us about the perception and the reality. Yeah, so you have to kind of blame Du Bois on this one, actually. Du Bois is the one who kind of set up this idea that Washington was an accommodationist and that he was the one who really cared about Black uplift because he was fighting for civil rights and Washington wanted to just keep white people happy and just focus on learning trades and things like that. Um, the thing that's very ironic about this whole story is that uh, when Washington gave his Atlanta Compromise speech, which was a very delicate situation, he was in front of a very diverse audience, including Southern whites. Uh, remember that Washington is way down in the deep south running the Tuskegee Institute. He is reliant on a lot of white donors. And so he has to step lightly and choose his words very, very carefully. And uh, initially, Du Bois actually praised that speech. He said it was a great speech. It was uh, 10 years later that he decided that it was an accommodationist speech. Uh, so he kind of changes its tune. But the reason I say uh, that uh, it's, it's really a false dichotomy, the dichotomy between economic uplift on the one hand and civil rights on the other. And we see this because number one, Booker T. Washington himself is actually secretly funding a lot of the political efforts that are happening, such as even one of Du Bois's own cases uh, involving the Pullman Car Company. And he's also secretly supporting boycotts. And so Washington is, is trying to walk a very fine line in the Deep South, but he's absolutely for uh, the fight for civil rights and for um, liberal arts education that goes beyond the trades. And he makes that, he even argues that himself against Du Bois. He says, you know, I hire teachers from liberal arts schools. I'm not just about the trades, right? But we need it all. We need all that economic uplift. But the other issue is that Du Bois's whole vision of uh, civil rights actually is totally untenable without the black middle and upper class that was created by Booker T. Washington's National Negro Business League. I mean, the man really deserves an incredible amount of, of credit. There's a reason he was called the leader of the race um, because he brought together 
this sort of group economy. So it's a kind of lifting yourselves up by your bootstraps, but not as individuals, but rather as, as Blacks together in many, uh, you know, thick civil society institutions like the church, the mutual aid societies, the fraternal associations, et cetera, and the National Negro Business League. And so you see uh, people like Madam C.J. Walker, the great hair care entrepreneur. She gave the NAACP the greatest gift they'd ever received. Um, you see the great publisher, John H. Johnson, a jet magazine, Ebony magazine. He's the one who decided to publish the pictures of Emmett Till's body, right? If we remember those terrible photos of that boy who was just brutally murdered, that was a huge turning point in the civil rights movement. And John H. Johnson said it was one of the toughest decisions he'd ever made, but it never would have happened if there hadn't been someone with the kind of economic clout that John H. Johnson had. And, and you see this also in the great and, and very sort of classical liberal guy, T.R.N. Howard, who hosted many of the early civil rights meetings, lots of guns, uh, making sure that his white neighbors knew the, they were not to be messed with. And he also protected the family of Emmett Till during their uh, trial. And he was a black hospitaler. He was opening black hospitals and he was a black doctor. And so this black middle and upper class was absolutely pivotal to um, funding and providing the lawyers for and the clout for the civil rights movement that came later. So Booker T. Washington really deserves more credit than he gets. And we tried to kind of rehabilitate him in the book. Well, and you also are unflinching in recounting uh, many of the atrocities that uh, were committed, um, not just under slavery, but uh, during Reconstruction and afterwards. And um, one of them was the burning of Black Wall Street in Tulsa. And you seem to suggest that in addition to racial animus, other factors such as envy came into play. At the Atlas Society, of course, we focus a lot on values and virtues and vices. So I was very interested in hearing more about that. Yeah, and I, I actually taught a class for many years called Dante and the Virtues, where, where we discussed the seven vices and the seven virtues. And the thing about envy is that it's worse than mere jealousy, right? It's worse than just wanting what you have. That can actually be kind of a productive tendency in humans. Uh, but it's, it's actually extremely destructive because envy is a status good. Um, and so what you want is to be above the other person. So I want what you have and I don't want you to have it, right? I want to destroy your having it so that I can have it and be above you. And so part, it's really not a separate thing. It's part and parcel of the racial hierarchy that we had going in the United States, that when you had a group like existed in Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Greenwood was the black part of town. It was very well off. The black community was doing very, very well. They were doing a lot of trade with the white side of town. Um, it was extremely productive. And if we were thinking like good self-interested people, we would just pay attention to the gains from mutual exchange, right? Uh, mutual advantage from exchange. But instead there was this sense of envy that really exploded uh, when, you know, there was a, an accusation might have even been false against a young man for kind of running into a girl in an elevator. The thing just lit on fire. And you and, and, and in three days, the, the town was destroyed. Um, 300 people were dead. Uh, absolutely one of the worst atrocities in our history. And there are dozens of massacres like this in U.S. history when there's a tension over what is the relationship between whites and blacks in our town going to be. And so it's really distressing to consider the fact that you have blacks really making it and living the American dream and, and doing the, the uh, self-help, the black self-help, and then having those efforts destroyed and just how discouraging that can be and almost running from state to state to get to a place where their rights will actually be honored. So when we discussed uh, bundling and the imperative to unbundle the, the kind of tribal collections of positions in understanding uh, race relations. Um, today, you see the modern Democratic Party uh, as a, a bastion of uh, progressivism, but um, you give us a bit more of the, the history and the relationship between progressivism and the, the eugenics movement. Uh, what were Tell us a little bit about that and what were some of the policies that it uh, spurred? Yeah, so there was kind of a view, you know, you had the sort of the rise of Darwinism at that time, but there was the view that, you know, if evolution is just allowed to take its course, this uh, 
wild capitalistic, you know, robber baron reality of the late 19th century was actually going to maybe um, inculcate the wrong sorts of people um, through evolution. And so what we needed to do was guide evolution through the the rule of the experts, right? And that's that's really how I think of progressives. Progressives are central planners. They believe in the rule of the experts and that modern life is too complex to leave to uh, sort of organic movements within society. And so uh, you actually had an extremely popular eugenics movement. This almost can't be overstated. Uh, you can look at just very run-of-the-mill textbooks, uh, particularly in economics, but in many, many areas that are laying out a racial hierarchy. Uh, Aryans are always at the top. Blacks are always at the bottom. Whatever, whatever else might have happened in the middle, that's pretty consistent. And the idea that in the United States, we needed to protect the Aryan family, the male head of household. And one of the ways that we were going to do that is by um, protecting his wages. And so... A lot of famous people involved in this stuff, including uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, Lord John uh, John Maynard Keynes. Lord John Maynard Keynes was involved. Um, Kellogg, the serial guy. Uh, you know, a, a lot of these really major, major players were eugenicists. Uh, some of some of it went very far, like to the extent of wanting to sterilize people, and we did sterilize many Native American and Black women. Um, actually, Fannie Lou Hamer was sterilized. They called it a Mississippi appendectomy. So if you went in for a problem uh, while they were in there, they would just tie your tubes without your permission. And so that sort of thing was done. And of course, uh, epileptics and other disabled people were sterilized um, in the tens of thousands in the early 20th century. Uh, the last, actually the last of this happened in Sweden. It was popular in Europe as well. The last sterilization in Sweden was in 1971. So this is not oh. that long ago. Uh, but we forgot how popular eugenics was because, of course, during World War II, it got a you know bad name under Hitler, right? And so uh, people distanced themselves from the ideas. But uh, Keynes said, um, you know, uh, now that we've got the quantity question under control, we need to address quality, right? And he's talking about the population, who gets to reproduce. So one of the ways that the economists did this is that they thought uh, they had a very weird idea that black people um, it, it would just sort of die out under the right circumstances. It was very strange. I can't even believe they believed it, but they did. And so they wanted to um, hike wages up high enough that employers would only hire these white men and that uh, women, the disabled, immigrants, and black people would then be shut out. And Kellogg actually suggests at one point putting the minimum wage at $2.50, which would have been outrageous at the time. It would have been very, very high. And absolutely no one would have been hired uh, except uh, white men. And so that was part of the, the plan to sort of disemploy all of these other people. And then white women would be taken care of by their white husbands and everyone else could sort of die out or leave. And so that is the advent of the minimum wage, as a matter of fact. So it was actually desired for its disemployment effects. While today, uh, we tend to think of the disemployment effects as an argue against the minimum wage, but that was actually the argument for it made by the eugenicists. Fascinating. Um, and I think one of the more interesting innovations in your book is the way that you weave in lessons in classical liberalism with history. And one of, of course, the biggest lessons was the failure of central planning. You write that, quote, ambitious attempts at social, socially engineering the populace undermined and destroyed Black property and contract rights at every turn. What are some of the most egregious examples of that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because when we think of the 19th century, we often think of the way that states' rights or, or even municipal um, areas were abused in order to exclude Black Americans from their their rights as citizens. But in the 20th century, it was the federal government uh, who spent its time doing this. And the, 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 the three programs that I always mention together are redlining, which we hear a lot about uh, these days, but two others that we don't hear as much about is the building of the federal highway system and something called urban renewal, which James Baldwin called Negro removal. And so all of these actually work together to create a really terrible situation, which we're living with today, right? Ghettoized people who are in extremely poor, destabilized inner city neighborhoods. 
And that's really what happened. So with redlining, what you have is the effort of the Federal Housing Administration to keep white and black people separate. Uh, and they did this by refusing to insure the mortgages for black or mixed neighborhoods. And there were actually even on record, and you can read this in Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, uh, on record, you have attempts by banks and developers to create black neighborhoods or integrated neighborhoods. And the FHA just says, no, they're just not allowed to do it. And how many attempts were never even tried, right? Because they knew what the FHA would say. And so at the same time, we've, we're doing the GI Bill. So you're sending these white soldiers out to the suburbs to live there. You're subsidizing their housing. Uh, black soldiers have the GI Bill, but they're not allowed to live in those neighborhoods. And the FHA won't approve anything in their neighborhoods. And so you have much higher housing costs for Black Americans, uh, very limited in terms of where they're able to go. And then added on to this in the 1950s, we uh, passed the Federal Highway Act. And for the next 40 years, we start building this massive, this was the biggest spending project outside of war that the federal government had ever undertaken. And what happened was that in every major municipality, as soon as you handed these municipal leaders millions of dollars to do with as they please, they put the highways right through the economic centers of black and Latino neighborhoods. They wanted to separate the black and white parts of town. And they also just wanted to get rid of areas of town that didn't look good to them. And so they did that with the highway. And let me tell you, if you build a big concrete wall between two communities, it makes it very hard to have good exchange going on and good economic exchange. So that was incredibly stultifying, but it was also scattering a lot of the um, social uh, progress that had been made through private schools, churches, organizations, fraternal societies, you know, everything that was gathering together in those black economic centers were literally just mowed down by the highways. And to add insult to injury, uh, we started the urban renewal program, which is slum clearance. And this is really just pure eminent domain abuse. So you just take black neighborhoods, decide that they're blighted, mow them down, replace them with much fewer uh, numbers of apartments at much higher rates. Uh, blacks have to relocate to places that they can afford. And oftentimes their, their cultural institutions just crumble because how can you reconstitute that when you're blown to the four winds in that sort of a way? And so what we see today with these very ghettoized areas that uh, are cut off seemingly from everyone else, deeply isolated, network poverty is how I often refer to it. This is really the legacy of these huge progressive social engineering central planning projects. All right. Well, um, if with your leave, I want to take a break from my questions. We've got a bunch of really terrific questions and comments coming in from social media. Uh, including a shout out to you from Dr. Philip D. Fletcher on YouTube. Oh, Phil, good to see you. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, from Facebook, Mark Cabot uh, asks Has the welfare state helped or harmed African Americans? Great question. So, chapter nine, uh, we deal with the Great Society. And uh, I, I definitely agree with the conservative um, critiques of the welfare state, the disincentives that are built into the way that our, our welfare benefits are set up are so egregious. And I'm actually gonna have some articles coming out on this over the summer. It's actually shocking. It's more shocking than even a lot of conservatives know. It's like a 95% marginal tax rate. I mean, it just completely removes any incentive you could have to work really hard and deal with daycare and all of these things when you're losing so, so many benefits. So, so you have a kind of desert, uh, not just a welfare cliff, but a welfare desert. The incentives are terrible and the effect on family structure is very bad. And it's not just white conservatives saying that, it's also black nationalists like Malcolm X, right? Malcolm X blames the welfare system for breaking up his own family and, and, and causing the problems that he experienced in his life. And so um, I think that's absolutely right. However, um, in the book, what we do is we kind of tell a little bit more of a nuanced story where we, we, we tell you about three things. So it's not just the welfare state and the disincentives of the welfare state. It's also um, serious unemployment in manufacturing that actually arises from the, um, from the unions. So the unions are shoving up wages as high as they can go. And one thing that's often not understood is that unions in the private sector in America 
were just outrageously racist. Um, I mean, I mean, really persistently racist. Uh, they really never got past that. Some people say they haven't even today uh, in some cases. And uh, you see more unionization um, popular among black people in the public sector, but not in the private sector. And so uh, what you have are unions that never let black people in in the first place. And then when they were finally pressured to let them in, by that time, they'd already shoved up wages so high that they had sped up the process of automation and offshoring. Of course, those things were going to happen eventually, but by pushing up the wages uh, faster than they normally would, they they missed the window. Black, black Americans really missed the window. But unemployment by itself, which is what progressives often want to blame, for instance, uh, when it comes to family structure issues that arise, um, actually doesn't explain it. Because during the Depression, you have high levels of unemployment and you do see delayed marriage, but the rates of marriage are high. They, they actually don't go down. Um, and, and in fact, those marriages lasted uh, quite well. And so it's the unemployment with the disincentives of the welfare state, plus actually the contraception shock. Right, because the contraception shock changes the sexual politics between men and women and sort of the reasons people got married, right, in some cases. And so what you get is the undermining of black family structure first, but then you see the same effects slowly take effect uh, among poor Latino and poor white communities where you see the same sort of pathologies, very low levels of marriage, high levels of addiction, high levels of involvement in the criminal justice system. And so it's not so much a black issue and we wanna be really careful with that, right? Once we get past the de jure stuff that's happening up until the 1960s, we're looking at problems that can disparately affect black Americans, but actually affect a bunch of Americans besides black people. So we remember that there's three times as many poor white people as there are poor black people in the United States and they're government dependent too. And so you're seeing a lot of the same undermining there. And then the other thing we say in this section, just to add a little nuance to it, is we really challenge conservatives. We say to conservatives, listen, if you want to be critiques, uh, 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 critics of the welfare state, you better be just as hard on corporate welfare, because corporate welfare is going to cause the same sorts of dysfunctions uh, that, that social welfare is, uh, except in the corporate world, right? And so you're going to get all sorts of misinformation, malinvestment, um, corruption, you're going to see a lot of the same things. And so you better ride them just as hard as you write, as you ride the social welfare. All right. From Instagram, Marco Muno asks, uh, it's actually a topic you write extensively about in your book. He asks, is the solution regarding unjust criminal laws just to reform them with a racial lens or abolish a bunch, bunch of laws outright? Well, <laughs> yes, we deal with this extensively. So I have five solutions that I discuss in the book. Criminal justice reform is one. We also talk about economic freedom, educational freedom, transitional justice, and neighborhood stabilization. So I'd be happy to talk about any of those. But when it comes to criminal justice reform, you're right. In the first place, there's a bunch of things that are criminalized that just don't need to be. Uh, criminalized at all. So we're obviously we're against the drug war. Um, and, and there's many other areas in which the criminal code needs to be heavily uh, simplified. Um, so yes, uh, overcriminalization is a major, major problem. Uh, the growth of the administrative state, the loss of mens rea. Yes, yes, yes. We need to get rid of a lot of those laws. Uh, sometimes we, we have things that are pushed up in their seriousness to the level of felonies and they really don't need to be. They need to be misdemeanors. There are some misdemeanors that could just be tickets. Um, so there's a lot of uh, ways that we could de-legalize, de, uh, right? A lot of these things or, or decriminalize a lot of these things. So I agree with that. But beyond that, there is a lot that I think that we can reform and we go through several ideas, uh, drawing a lot upon the work of uh, the, the book Injustice for All by Jason Brennan and Chris Supernot, who are just really creative about thinking about ways to, um, to align incentives well when it comes to, say, prisons or even police. Uh, but the other thing we really want to point out here, and this is coming from John Pfaff's book, Locked In, is that the real crux of our criminal justice system is the prosecutor. Um, and the, that's a local issue, right? That's local, who you, who you make your prosecutor. Um, prosecutors have way, way too much power their offices are a black box. We don't know what goes on in them. Um, They're incentivized badly to just want a high conviction rate, plea bargain everything out so that they can get a high conviction rate. 
And of course, we have a terrible system of public defense. And so we talk about lots of creative ways that we could bust up that kind of monopoly on who gets charged and what they get charged with. Um, and so one of the reasons I emphasize that is because if you look at a book like, say, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, you might think that this is all about the drug war. This is all about being anti-Black. But that's not really true. I mean, a lot of our dysfunctions in the criminal justice system are are like purely bureaucratic, like they're just problems that are very boring to fix. They're process problems, uh, like how do we incentivize our prosecutors or who, who pays the police, right, or whatever. And so uh, many times we just need to bite the bullet and care about real boring policy issues and uh, things like DEI trainings aren't going to solve anything because that's not that kind of on the nose solution isn't actually what's at the root of the problem. And so we want to get back down to the roots and get those really, really good legal processes in place that are going to protect people's rights. Uh, well, you mentioned DEI and I, um, you know, that's, as you say, a kind of immediate solution. It's something very much in the news uh, right now. And a lot of um, different, everything from military agencies to companies to uh, big corporations are undertaking it. And so it leads me to another question we have here from Instagram, MGTOW. MGTOW Tom asks, have racial tensions always been at this level of elevation or is this something pushed more by certain special interest groups? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, yeah. You know, I grew up in the 90s. I was a teen and a young adult in the 90s, and there's certainly a feeling of uh, much more hopefulness in the 90s and more of a sense of uh, togetherness, I guess. And so sometimes I look back and I think, well, what happened, you know, is, is some of this academic stuff that we get from the far left really ginning up a lot of this resentment, or is it real? And I actually think there's a real mix there. Um, you know, the, the story is never simple. Uh, I, I think there is some of that. I think sometimes we are over, I should say totalizing race. So race is actually an extremely important part of American culture and import, an important part of American history. You cannot understand American history at all without understanding uh, our history of race. So I don't mean overemphasizing it, but I think we, there's a one thingism, as Jonah Goldberg would say, right? Uh, there's a tendency to totalize something. It needs attention, but it's not the only thing that needs attention, right? Stories are always multi-causal. And so uh, I do think that it is sometimes badly overstated by the left in academia. At the same time, uh, sometimes when things get better, it's kind of like consciousness raising. When things start to get better, that's the moment at which you finally feel safe to admit how angry you are, right? If you think about it in kind of therapeutic terms. And so I do think there's a sense in which things are so good racially now that finally black people are able to say, you know, I really resent uh, you know, the, the fact that my parents were traumatized growing up under Jim Crow, you know, or I really resent the fact that my black church tradition isn't known or understood by the white church. You know, why don't they care about us? Aren't we their brothers and sisters too? So, you know, I really resent the fact that, that my white friends don't know what I go through when it comes to the police and people following me around, you know, in stores and things like that. So, so I think a lot of that is real and I don't discount it at all. Um, I think it may be that we're finally at a moment where, where we need to face it. Um, now, would it have been better if in the 1970s there had been a real uh, facing, you know, maybe even a switching out of some of the um, some of the officials, right? Like like having police who were just defending Jim Crow yesterday turn around and be the ones who were supposed to be defending the opposite the next day sounds like uh, uh, an idea that won't work and it didn't work, right? And so uh, maybe there was a missed chance and now we're kind of paying the price for not taking that chance when we had it. And we're dealing with a lot of, uh, you know, how wounds can, can uh, get worse, right? If they're ignored. And so I think there is some of that that's true too. So it's a real mixed bag. Okay, um, boy, we just have a wealth of questions here. Um, right. Tina T6 on Twitter asks, based on what you were saying, do you disagree then with Herman Hoppe? Hans Herman Hoppe. Hoppe, uh, yeah. Disagree with him on what? I know his theory of property rights. I do disagree with his theory of property rights, but I'm not sure if that's what you're asking me about. Uh, I like All his right, idea we'll try that to get 
Yeah, we'll I, was say, I like his small is beautiful. There's a lot of hyper local solutions that we look at, including our neighborhood stabilization. I think that part really goes well with his views. But uh, we are classical liberals in the book. We are not anarcho-capitalists. So uh, just to be clear about that, we, we are uh, minimal government people. Edgar Wright on Facebook asks, what is your take on inner city public schools and the academic difficulties of the kids therein? Yeah, great, great question. We have a whole section on educational freedom in the book. And, you know, I want to be really fair here because um, there's really two things going on. On the one hand, you do have a system where there is no competition right? The public school system, you have automatic raises, you have automatic, you know, it's very hard to fire anyone. Read about the rubber rooms. It's insane. People who mess up on the job can just sit in a room and be paid for years. You know, it's, it's bizarre, right? So there's a lot of crazy incentives in the public school system and a lot of reasons why particularly difficult situations aren't going to be handled well by the public school system. At the same time, I want to be really fair and say, look, the situation in the inner cities is really, really difficult you're dealing with problems stacked on problems, right? You've got kids who might not have eaten well that day. You've got kids who have been have been traumatized by living in a very high crime area. You have kids who's who are seeing high levels of addiction all around them. Uh, they don't have a ton of books in the home, perhaps, right? There's a lot of things at work there. They don't have parents who can get involved. A lot of the things that make County schools work well are just things like parent involvement, right? Or having a lot of books in your home, you know, having a lot of uh, well-educated parents who are kind of educating their kids themselves, right? And then sending them to school to sort of finish the job. So I don't want to just blame public school teachers as though it's all their fault. It's also just a really, really difficult group to work with. And that's why we must have school choice because you have to introduce some competition that allows people the freedom to be creative. So for instance, in a very destabilized environment, it can be extremely helpful for kids to have a high level of structure. Now, most public schools are not even allowed to have a, a, you know, a military style, you, know, you must wear black socks or whatever the rule might be, but that may actually help those kids feel very safe it might, it might actually help enculturate families into a, a, a higher level of demand that's being put on their kids. Um, and, and we've seen that work, right? And Thomas Sowell's written a whole book on successful charter schools just recently. And so there just has to be a situation in which funding can follow the students so that students can get into a school that is serving the specifically very difficult situation and needs that they're coming to the table with. Uh, and so I, I just want to finish off by saying, if everything I said, uh, finish off that question, by saying, if everything I said about highways, urban renewal, and redlining is true, then if we are basing our school districts on your zip code, right, your ability to go to school on your zip code, we are doing nothing but perpetuating that injustice. It's a geographic injustice through decades and decades of uh, social engineering, and we have to bust out of it. And the only way to bust out of it is to let those kids go to school somewhere else. All right, and um, we're gonna put links again in all of the chats on all of the platforms to Rachel's book, Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, very important. Um, and I'm looking at these dozens of questions we have. I definitely wanna to get to yours, Ernest Fowler and My Modern Galt and, and Janie Achervetti. We're gonna to get to them, but I also prepared a few for Rachel based on my um, reading of her book. And one of the issues that uh, you cover is uh, this idea of transitional justice. I have to admit it was kind of new to me. So um, how does your approach, how does it differ say from reparations or are they just different ways of describing the same concept? Yeah, great question. So transitional justice is a little more of an unfamiliar uh, idea, I think, for people. I actually learned about it through a wonderful article in Fathom Magazine called Finally Healing the Wounds of Jim Crow, which is written by my good friend Anthony Bradley, uh, who is a Black classical liberal himself. And what he's saying is that the sort of apartheid-like system that we had in the United States is similar to international situations where you have major humanitarian violations that have occurred over generations and are society-wide. So in other words, how do you address a justice problem 
when you're not looking at a particular crime, but a whole system of crime, right? And, and that's a really tough question. And so there's a lot that goes into that. Um, uh, one of them is actually looking at the local area, looking at ways in which you can go back and look at actual individual crimes. Um, and we see this in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So for instance, the white Republican mayor of Tulsa, Oklahoma started an archeological dig to uh, find out what really happened uh, and, and to find out how many people really died and, and, and to tell that story correctly. There's a whole concept of institutional memory in transitional justice where we are telling the truth and we're honoring the survivors. And I think that's really important um, because these were real crimes. Uh, they were property crimes. They were violent crimes. Neighbors uh, burned their neighbor's property. They, they um, physically assaulted them. Uh, they, they, uh, courts failed to, to um, defend their contracts, right? Uh, and left them high and dry. And so uh, many of these things are, even from a purely libertarian perspective, actual crimes. And so how can we go back and individually address them? How can we at the least address them in terms of institutional memory? And then finally, what do we say about reparations? Um, transitional justice can include reparations if that's appropriate. Uh, we, we gave reparations to the Japanese, for instance, that was a, a good example. Uh, the Japanese who were thrown into internment camps and their property was confiscated, all received, I believe it was $20,000 from the federal government in the 1980s. Reparations is usually limited to a human lifetime. So it's not like we're going back to slavery when we're talking about reparations. We're talking about Jim Crow. We're talking about things within our living memory. I know people who lived under Jim Crow and I know people who imposed Jim Crow uh, that are still alive, right? And so that's in our living memory. Um, but what I do is I argue against those who have uh, defended reparations with the idea of a tax and spend, right? That we're just gonna tax people and pay reparations in order to um, right past wrongs. Because in fact, uh, white people did not benefit from the economic exclusion of black people on the whole. Um, they lost, right? Whenever you exclude a group and you don't let them improve their human capital, you don't let them move to where their labor's most needed, you don't acknowledge their inventions, uh, they have no network to uh, build their businesses, you're losing. You're losing everything you could have exchanged with them. So we were all losers in the exploitation game. And therefore, it really would not be right to tax people and then redistribute that, that wealth. What would be right is if the federal government uh, actually sold a portion of its assets. Uh, because we see with urban renewal, highway construction, and FHA redlining that it was really the federal government in the Jim Crow period that committed so many of these crimes. And so it should be their assets that go to any kind of a reparations plan. And then, you know, I try to think of anything we might do in terms of supporting the business community, because we, what we really want to do is build black wealth. And so we want to, and, and I think that's up for creative discussion, right? How we could best uh, channel those funds. I don't mean to say that reparations is any kind of a silver bullet. I don't know whether it would work, so to speak, uh, in terms of building black wealth, but I think there's a legitimate justice claim and it needs to be made against the federal government's assets. Well, our, speaking of controversial issues, uh, your epilogue covers all the controversial stuff, as you put it, um, yeah. <laughs> and you acknowledge that it would hardly be possible to write a book about American race relations without being asked about things like critical race theory, uh, mm -hmm. anti-racism, and of course, reparations, which we just discussed. So to start with CRT, uh, it seems pretty explicitly at odds with the classical liberal approach you and your co-author take in the book. Why has it taken such firm root in academia? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And I actually think there's one good reason that it has and one bad reason that it has. Um, and so, so critical race theory is openly anti-liberal, right? Um, and, and so I actually quote Richard Delgado and Derek Bell explaining that they're at least very suspicious of liberal law and, and maybe, maybe much worse than that. And I actually think uh, we can show through the great enrichment, the rise of global markets, that uh, liberal law has actually been the source of, of uh, real liberation all over the world. So I just don't think that's a tenable view. But I do think that American classical liberals and conservatives have not always done a good job of telling their own version 
of black oppression, right? And that's what that's what I'm doing in the book. And I'm drawing attention to those that did Frederick Douglass, uh, Garrison, um, Villard, who helped start the NAACP, Rose Wilder Lane, writing at the Pittsburgh Courier, one of the three mothers of libertarianism, Zora Neale Hurston, there, TRM Howard, right? There are figures that were both pro pro-black and classical liberal, but it's also the case that uh black oppression got ignored by many of us. And so, you know, F.A. Hayek never mentions. Uh, black exclusion, economic exclusion, even, even as he's writing the Constitution of Liberty, right? Explaining how you benefit so much from having uh, access to a system of liberal law. Uh, he doesn't even take notice of the fact. And I've double checked, uh, you know, he, he really didn't. And so what you see is that critical race theory is paying attention to the history of our law. And they are alive to the fact that um, the liberal law was abrogated in many cases in order to exclude Black Americans economically, and they're right. So I think in one case, it's just drawing attention to something that's true and, and others didn't, um, they didn't take up that space in the conversation, right? And so it got taken up by, by the far left and, and that's on us uh, to take responsibility for that. But I think one of the, the bad reasons that it's taken hold is because uh, maybe academics, this is kind of a Thomas Sowell point, academics and intellectuals, uh, you know, see themselves as, as problem solvers. They're philosopher kings, right? Uh, you know, it's up to us to figure things out and tell people what to do. And if you believe in the information problem, if you believe in the failure of central planning, if you believe in organic, thick civil society institutions, if you want, if you want to tolerate free people just trying creatively to solve their problems, um, there's nothing the academics have to tell you, right? It's, it's not their job to, to decide how you should live. So I think there's a kind of attraction in academia to any system that can simplify down the story to one thing that they can then solve through central planning um, or through a kind of ideological warfare, which is what we see, I think, with, uh, with DEI, for instance. And, uh, and what we find, of course, is that these are massive failures. I mean, and, and there's, a, there's a ton of, of data on this, by the way. This isn't just me spouting off my opinion. Um, there's a lot of data on diversity, equity, inclusion training, just absolutely not making your workplace more diverse. It just doesn't. Implicit bias training does not reduce implicit bias, biases. Uh, it can actually make biases worse. Um, and so that's an on-the-nose solution from a group of people who are thinking in terms of racism as the proximate cause of the situation we're in now with certain inequalities. But racism is actually the non-proximate cause. In other words, it's in the causal chain back there, right? But it goes on to cause things like the failures of the great society, et cetera, right? The way that the highways were constructed, we can tell that story. And then that does what? It undermines families, it isolates people economically, it kills their networks. Now we've got those problems, right? So what do we need? We need networks, we need mentors, right? We need parent mentors. We actually need that face-to-face, -face, deeply personal uh, work that for instance, um, the heroes of neighborhood stabilization are doing in many of our great cities. It's not something that's going to be solved through policy. It's going to be solved from the bottom up. All right. Well, we've got seven, eight minutes left. Um, so I am going to try to get to a few of these great questions that we've got coming in from all over social media. Um, speaking of academia, Ernest Fowler on Twitter asks, what do you think about racial discrimination in college admissions, especially the Harvard incident? Racial discrimination in college admissions. Well, it's pretty egregious. Um, so you have Asian students who have been downgraded uh, in their admission uh, based on their personality, uh, which is pretty racist uh, to say that they're boring, basically, even though they're very, very good students. And uh, Harvard didn't want a student body that was 50% Asian, and I don't see why. Um, what's wrong with a student body that's 50% Asian? Uh, that, that's fine with me. Uh, especially if they're going to be, you know, engineering the bridge or whatever near my house. I want it to be the best it can be. Um, I do think that uh, John McWhorter, building on a lot of data developed by others, is really right about the mismatch theory. Um, and this is the view that if the story we're telling is true and that many uh, Black people have dealt with, you know, very unfair uh, educational backgrounds, neighborhood backgrounds, family structure backgrounds, then it is going to be a struggle to reach the upper echelons of education, at least in one generation, right? It's going to take some time. 
Um, and so what you have are very intelligent black people. Let's say you're going to the University of Michigan to become a doctor. Great. Um, if MIT or Harvard or someone like that bids you away because they want the affirmative action um, admit, you may end up not being able to keep up with the fast pace of that school, not because you're dumb, but because you didn't go to a prep school, you didn't get special ACT courses that your parents paid for, you didn't have the special science summer camps, you just didn't have access to those things that are allowing you to jump right in and go at that really fast pace. Uh, when you would have been very successful at University of Michigan, gotten through and become a successful black doctor, now you're going to Harvard and you're deciding to major in sociology because you can't keep up with the pre-med classes. That's not helping the black community, that's hurting it, uh, right? And he's showing uh, the data that a lot of this is really true. This is really happening. We just need to give it a couple more generations to have all of us catching up from all of the damage that was done in the 20th century. And so uh, a lot of these college admissions cases are, um, you know, well-intentioned, but actually uh, an unintended consequence of making things worse rather than better. You know, a very typical kind of Hayekian example of unintended consequences. All right, I'll take this one last question if we can. It's a big question, so I don't know if we're going to be able to, uh, to okay. manage it. And Janie Acha Turvedi on Instagram asks, how will the race relations change once whites become a, a minority in the USA? I'm not sure, would you say that is? Uh, yeah, it's a very interesting question. I, I guess we're thinking that'll happen by about 2050 or something, right? I think I've seen that. Um, you know, I let me put it this way. Um, you know, Americans, given our history, we are obsessed with race. Uh, and, and it's kind of unsurprising, right? Because we racialized slavery and we did, uh, we did establish white supremacy during Jim Crow, real white supremacy, right? Not just, not just bandying the term about, right? But actual legal supremacy. Um, and so it's no surprise that we're obsessed with race, but let's be clear, um, life is not about race, it's about culture. It's about culture. So is there a black American culture? Absolutely, right? Um, now it's complicated. There's different subsections, right? But you can see it in the black church. You can see it in black music, right? Uh, is there a white American culture? No, I don't think so. I think there's a Puritan kind of Northeastern culture. Uh, I think there's Southern laid back culture, uh, which is actually related to black culture. Uh, you know, I think there's so re culture's regional. Right, it's regional. I mean, that's a lot of reasons why there is a Black American culture because most Black Americans were in the South, uh, the Southeast, right? And so culture tends to be regional. So why do I say that? I say that because it really doesn't matter what the percentage of the white population is. I think what matters is is your region. It's it's your your actual culture. What are you shaped by? Are you shaped by um, music? Are you shaped by religion? Um, are you shaped by the way you were educated? Um, those are really the questions that are going to matter. And I think oftentimes some of the um, racial animus that you get coming from the alt-right is actually uh, actually really misguided. Um, you know, Black Americans are quite socially conservative, for instance. They're quite pro-business. Uh, a lot of immigrants, very socially conservative, deeply religious. Uh, people deeply appreciative of the American Constitution, very appreciative of the free enterprise system. Um, you know, there's really no reason necessarily in my mind to assume that because someone is coming in uh, from another race, another country, that they're not invested in the American ideal. Um, in many ways, the, the leaders who are the most invested in being against the American ideal are a bunch of white people, right? They're rich white liberals uh, that are, you know, professors in our, in our colleges. Um, and they're getting their ideas from uh, white people in Europe, right? Uh, from Hegel and Marx and uh, Marcuse and things like that, right? And so, um, so it's not really a racial issue. It's a cultural one. And if what we're concerned about is, uh, is having an American ideal that we can come together on to some extent, actually think that might be very possible in a highly multiracial multi America. Well, on that much more optimistic note, I think that's a good place to end it. Um, but uh, Professor Ferguson, I don't know if there's anything else that um, final points or issues that you wanted to add. And then of course, where's the best way to, to follow you and support your work? Well, the one thing I always like to tout, because it's my favorite thing that I'm obsessed with, is the neighborhood stabilization movement. Uh, you may have heard of Bob Woodson. He's well known in our circles, but there's also John Perkins, Bob Lupton's wonderful book, Toxic Charity, 
and Brian Fickert's book, When Helping Hurts. And these are all ways that I think that a free people, a voluntarist people like ourselves should really care about doing philanthropy right, making it really effective. Uh, and so I, I highly encourage you to read those books or look up my organization, lovethelou.com that I work with in St. Louis. Wonderful things are happening at the grassroots level. And I hope that we can all get on board with that. Uh, you can find me at Twitter. I'm at Liberty Ethics. Please follow me. Uh, I have a lot of fun on Twitter. Uh, friend me on Facebook, Rachel Ferguson. Uh, LinkedIn, I'm Rachel Ferguson at Concordia University, Chicago. And at rachelfergusononline.com. I blog, uh, mostly lately, I've just been posting the articles that I'm publishing in various places. Um, and so I need to update that, but you can always find my latest articles at rachelfergusononline.com as well. Wonderful, we've put those links into the chats. And again, her book is Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. Definitely pick it up, listen to it on Audible. Professor Ferguson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, I really enjoyed it. Great questions. Yeah, thanks to our audience, uh, just on fire today, really intelligent questions. Sorry we didn't get to all of them, but hey, you can find her on Twitter and so follow up. Um, and thanks to all of you who are watching out there. Um, if you enjoy this kind of programming, please consider supporting the Atlas Society with a tax deductible donation. That's it for today, the Atlas Society Acts. We'll see you back next week. Thank you.